broadcasting before and probably after the rapture. It's the Drew Marshall Show. The bloodwood and the desert oak Holding wrecks and boiling diesels Steaming 45 degrees The time has come Well, Kim Wallace is president and founder of Sojourners in Washington, D.C., a nonprofit faith-based organization network and movement whose mission statement calls for putting faith into action for social justice. He is editor-in-chief of Sojourners magazine and website, which has a combined print and electronic media readership of more than a quarter million people, with several million unique visitors to the website, sojo.net, each year. Jim Wallace is a best-selling author, public theologian, national preacher, social activist, and international commentator on ethics and public life. He has written 10 books, including The Uncommon Good and the New York Times bestseller, God's Politics, and also The Great Awakening, both New York Times bestsellers. He is a frequent speaker in the United States and abroad and has written for major newspapers, does regular columns for HuffPost, Time.com, and appears frequently on ABC, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, NPR, on shows from Jon Stewart's Daily Show to The O'Reilly Factor and Sunday shows like This Week and Meet the Press. He also teaches at Georgetown University and has taught at Harvard. Uh, he served on President Obama's first White House Advisory Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships and as the uh, chair of the Global Agenda Council on Values of the World Economic Forum. He is Jim Wallace, and I sure hope he lives up to that bio. You forgot Little League Baseball Coach, which <laughs> is the thing I enjoy the most. I do that for 11 years, 22 seasons. My two boys, who have now both aged out of Little League. Nice. Best part of my week every week. Do you have a commentary on how the Blue Jays did this year? Well, I think you finally, everybody ran into a team in Kansas City that didn't have a Cy Young Award winner, didn't have a Rookie of the Year, didn't have any award-winning players, but just were a great team and did whatever they did. Uh, to come back again and again. So it was kind of a great team. You had some great players, Blue Jays. Um, but uh, but we didn't win. Yeah, okay, they're not done. No, they're not done. <laughs> How are Joy and the boys? They're fine. This is uh, the year we are visiting colleges. So another visit this afternoon uh, for Luke. And uh, he wants to play college baseball and go to a good academic school, and he's worked hard at both, so it looks like those are both going to work out for him, so he's got lots of good choices, which a lot of kids don't, so we're very fortunate that he's got good choices, but we'll be deciding with him, he'll be deciding with us more more the way it is. Yeah. Um, yeah, soon. Uh, is, go. is he any good, though? He is actually pretty good, yeah. He was all met and all state last year here in uh, D.C. Wow. Good hitter, good hitter. Were you an athlete growing up, or were you just sort well, of one of those I, uh, social protest nerds? <laughs> well, I played baseball uh, growing up. I, yeah, I used to love sports, but my, both my boys are better than, than I ever was. So, so uh, they're fun. It was fun to be the coach and just kind of grow up with uh, when you got a bunch of kids in the house and they're all watching a game, and you walk in the family room, and one kid says, "Hi, Dad," and the other kids say, "Hi, Coach." <laughs> it's all it's nice <laughs> can you get your... you know all his friends all their friends and all their parents our house is kind of the clubhouse can... so we're a baseball family can you get your wife to say hi coach 
Well, she would never call me coach. No. In fact, she's a Brit, first, one of, one of the first ordained women in the Church of England years ago. And uh, she became the baseball commissioner. And so she, thought, she remained my boss then, you see, that's yeah. what was important. And outside our house was a sign that says, this family has been interrupted by the baseball season. Yeah. You know, your story, just to the, the, the way baseball intertwines through your story, reminds me a lot of Larry King. Uh, now, he, he is, his boys are twins. What, what's the age difference between your boys? They're 17 and 13. Okay. All right. Which one do you like better? <laughs> Which one do I like, like better? Well, you could ask... Uh, uh, Depending on the count and how many outs <laughs> and who's at the plate, which one can do different things. But they're they're both they're very different. They're loads of fun, and we have a great time. So I'm very blessed to have these boys and to be. The coaching really allowed me to just sort of really make that time sacred. So I just didn't travel hmm. when when uh, we had. So on the wee weekends, I'm home. Yeah. And I, I put the bed, my boys to bed most nights of their lives, and so those are my. So with the bio, bios, nice people send bios. But the thing that I like the most about what I do was the coaching. Sure. What about uh, Jim Wallace as a kid growing up? I mean, I don't want to get all Doctor Phil on you here, but uh, what kind of a boy were you? Were you, um, you know, a, an introspective guy who read a lot of books? Were you a street brawler? Were you a? Uh, I can't imagine that being the case. Like what? What were you like? Well, I had a, I had parents who said to me things like, um, "If if there is a kid on the playground that no one's playing with, you make sure you play with that kid." And my mom would say, "If I see a kid in the playground that's being left alone and you're there, you're in trouble." Hmm. Or, or they'd say, uh, "If there's a bully on the playground, uh, pick it on kids." you'd be the one to stand up to him. Now, they, they meant that all in very personal kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I began to apply it to um, to my uh, social view of the world politics, you know, they weren't sure at first what all that would mean. But uh, they, uh, they were very open and very supportive. I, I think, you know, I, I remember the night that I had to sit in the front row of church as a six-year-old kid, uh, we had a revival preacher uh, in this church that my parents helped start, and he was fiery. And I had to sit in the front row because all all the unsaved kids had to sit in the front row because the closer you are to a preacher, the more impact it could have on your life. You know, and my yeah. parents were worried. I was six years old. I was getting up in years, and I wasn't <laughs> saved yet. And so he he pointed his finger. It felt like right at me, and he said, um, "If Jesus came back tonight." Your mommy and daddy would be taken to heaven, and you would be left all by yourself. Wow. It got my attention, you know, and I realized at six I have a five-year-old sister to support, you know, which <laughs> didn't look good. So I asked my mom how to deal with this, and she told me not about the wrath of God, but the love of God. God loves you once, wants you to be his child. That sounded good, so I signed up. My first conversion, but as you know, evangelicals have many conversions, and my second one, which was the one that made the most difference, was when I was like 14, 15. I began to feel something was wrong. Something very big was very wrong in my city of Detroit, Michigan, and my country. And uh, I didn't know why we lived the way we did in white Detroit. 
and life seems so different in black Detroit, just a few miles or blocks away. Yeah. Begin to ask questions, and one day, uh, an elder said to me, um, Jim, you have to understand, Christianity has nothing to do with racism that's political. Our faith is personal. I was about 15, but I had gone in the city, and I'd looked around, and I'd made some friends, and I could see that something was wrong. And that's the night, when he said it, that's the night that I left with my head and my heart. And I eventually just left church altogether. They were happy to see me go to stop raising all these crazy questions. <laughs> and I didn't have words to go around, words for that experience back then, but I did, did later, and the words would be, God is personal but never private. And so ever since then, I've been trying to figure out what public faith means, how to take personal faith and take it public. And so the issue that was tearing out, tearing my, tearing at my heart and my head and everything in Detroit, racism, they said, had nothing to do with my faith. Then I said, well, I don't, don't want anything to do with it either. And I found myself in the civil rights movement and the youth movements of my time and at uh, university and then came back to faith after that and started so sojourners and all we're trying to do every day is figure out how to put faith into action in the world that's really yeah. all you well you must be just absolutely loving pope francis well you know to be honest it was a very uh moving time for me um because i i've never seen the gospel proclaimed at such high levels of power in, in my life. You've got to go way back to Martin Luther King Jr., where I was a teenager and saw some of that. But I, And then in between those public venues, when he was so eloquent and so uh, just, just he transformed those venues. I was at the White House uh, welcoming ceremony, usual thing, military and trumpets. And he just sat there, and everybody just talked about the most marginal and vulnerable. I've never seen that at the White House before. Wow. Or the Congress or the, uh, you know, the, in New York and Philadelphia. And, and yet, and in between, <laughs> he went and hung out with the people he likes to hang out with the most, lunch with the homeless in D.C., mm -hmm. uh, the prisoners in Philadelphia. My favorite one was when he put those kids in Harlem and this little girl is showing them this little board and trying to move stuff around. He couldn't figure it out. And she says, you have to double click. You have to double click. <laughs> so he did. <laughs> That's like my technology level would be the same. And, uh, but, but I saw him living the gospel in between proclaiming the gospel. And I never have seen that before. And it changed conversations. He, I think he's the greatest conversation changer in the world today. And, uh, we actually scheduled some meetings right afterwards with uh, here in D.C. with Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid and several senators and Benier and PSP people and, and the White House meeting coming up. And my question to them was, okay, you heard what he said. What does that mean? Hmm. Yeah. What does that mean for you? And uh, we had senators we weeping, you know, when he was here. But they, they don't know how to change the conversation in their world. No. No, uh, well, you know, these were changed. But that brings up a, another question for me. I mean, you know, here we're, we're on the phone with, with Reverend Jim Wallace, and you're, you're Mr. Washington God guy. You know, you're Mr. 202 for Jesus. And, uh, and I want to know how you can still dance in the world of lies and not want to go home and shower after every meeting. 
Well, uh, I remember when uh, Obama was um, elected, and I, I had, he's the only president that I've, I'd, I had known before he was elected. And uh, some of them became friends after, but he was, he was a friend before. I knew him way back in Chicago. So we'd been talking and emailing. and But when, when he was elected, everything changed, and I went for my first visit uh, to the White House itself. And I, I, I couldn't get through security because I'd been arrested so many times outside the White House. <laughs> I was in all the lists. And, and so they had to call down and said, no, he's okay, he's okay. Uh, but, but it shows the tension between the outside and the inside. Yeah. My view of change and my view of biblical faith is that, is that you need movements on the outside to change things on the inside. Civil rights, abolition, slavery, uh, all, all the movements we talk about, uh, you've got to have, because on the inside here, they, they just really think you'll be happy with meetings. I mean, they think access is all anybody ever really wants. Yeah. And that is all most people want, who returns your calls, who calls you, well, I met with so-and-so. Well, what's the point of it? If the access doesn't lead to change, what's the point of it? So that's a tension. It's always there between building movements on on the outside. But if you just have movements on the outside, King had to learn to navigate those cores of power. And so Gandhi said, all of my, my heroes on my wall here at home where I'm talking to you, my cloud of witnesses, pictures all over the walls. Two of them were lifted up by Pope Francis in Congress, Thomas Merton and Dorothy Day. Hmm. I'm looking at their pictures now. Never did I expect they'd be named in the U.S. Congress. And Dot King, right here, all three of them were lifted up in the Congress by, by Francis. So how do you build movements on the outside? And immigration right now, we're doing that. Poverty, criminal justice, trafficking. Women and girls, how do you build moves on the outside? They can actually change things on the inside. Around immigration, we had this this fast. Now, immigrants began it, and I they asked me to commission them, so I did. Then, then they got me to join the fast. So we fasted just just on water for uh, several weeks. And I remember uh, they all came to visit. You could see the Congress. I said it was right across the street, and a congressman came. A lot of them came. Obama came. One of them came, and she was sitting next to me, and then a woman on the other side, I introduced them, and they're both mothers, and the immigrant woman said said how she lost, separated from her teenage daughter. The congresswoman has a teenage daughter, and she just began to cry. She's very tough, very, you, you'd know her name, very, uh, very respect, and she began to cry. Two women hugged each other and just wept in each other's arms. Mm. I said, Congresswoman, how do we have this happen up there, across the street, on the hill? If they knew the stories, if they met the mother who, who can't be with her teenage daughter, and in tears she said, there are so many layers, Jim, between here and there, so many layers. I don't know how to get through them. <laughs> and social movements, that's what we have to do. We have to get through the layers and personally understand, help people see these are not statistics. These are or uh, people you use for sound bites and demonize for presidential campaigns. This is done here all the time. Yeah. These are pe- people and families and kids and faces who we've got to come to know. And that's my conversion text was Matthew 25, which brought me out of the student movement and to Christ, which said, 
uh, I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was naked, I was sick, I was a stranger, I was in prison, and you didn't show up for me. And they said, Lord, when do we see you hungry and thirsty? As you've done in the least of these, you've done to me. How you treat the immigrant, the vulnerable, is how you treat Christ himself. That was more radical than anything I'd ever read in Marx, Ho Chi Minh, or Che Guevara. So I signed up. And that's been my conversion text ever since. It converts me most every day. Right. Okay, Jim, who are the least of the least of these? Well, um, you know, the uh, the UN just had a big meeting, and everybody agreed that we have actually made progress globally on, on those who are uh, in extreme poverty, as they would say. Uh, living on less than a dollar twenty-five a day, we've cut that number in half uh, in the last uh, twenty-five years. And so you got Jim Kim of the World Bank and Ban Ki Moon and others. They're all working with us, reaching out to the faith community, lots of other places and people. And they say we got now we got to end this by twenty thirty, and we for the first time have the tools to do that. And so uh, that's a new goal now that the world has agreed to. A lot of nations sign that, but to do that is going to require a great deal from us. And well, hold on, those hold on. Who are, you're, you're talking about ending world poverty by 2030, that, right? And and Jim Kim at the World Bank and others now, and they're right. We we have the what they call the evidence now. Um, we we know what works and what doesn't work, and that could happen to end extreme poverty by 2030. However. Um, it, we don't have the political will, and that's why they've come to a lot of us in the fake news saying we need the we don't have the moral authority they would say or the constituency to generate the political political will to make that happen. So the margin where those who are who are I mean you've I've read your story you've seen those kids walking barefoot uh, in uh, on gar- garbage dumps. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that's that's who. That's who we're talking about. And but but is, there, is there a new category of pariah these days? I mean, obviously we're talking about poor and poverty and, and those that have the least. But but that's a pretty North American way to look at the least of these, is it not? If they if they don't have anything? Well, they're also in North America, obviously. And uh, immigrants, those who are undocumented, 11 million here in this country... In the U.S., uh, they're certainly in that category, too, and they're being made into a political issue in our presidential election. Uh, so it's it's all those who we tend to walk around, push away, uh, look past, who don't vote normally, don't have political interests uh, uh, funding them or speaking on their behalf, and it's those who are you know, just uh, out of mind, out of sight. And what the scriptures say is is focusing on them helps us to understand that we're all God's children. So I'm very involved with the Black Lives Matter movement. People say, well, don't all lives matter? Of course, all lives matter. But, but until black lives, which are at the bottom of our criminal justice system, until those lives matter, mm-hmm. then that challenges all the rest of our lives. And I, I know that Trayvon Martin was killed in Sanford, Florida, for example, um, 
my son Luke, my big six foot muscular baseball player Luke, was walking in the same place in Santa Florida, same time as Trayvon, doing the same things, and even wearing a hoodie. The whole world knows he would have come back to me and Joy, but Trayvon didn't come back. So that's the, the literally the day I sat down to start writing this new book, which is called America's Original Sin. Hmm. So in January, it's racism, white privilege, and the bridge to a new America. And so to me, those kids in the street um, in Ferguson, who I've come to know, uh, they're they're really at the center of this. And so I'm hopeful because every day I'm in conversation with young leaders from Ferguson to South Africa, who called some called yesterday, and they're leading the whole movement over there that they're not sure reading about. Because and I was able to introduce those young leaders to each other at our summit in June that so Sojourners has here in Washington for young leaders. So all over the world, uh, North America and all over the world, there are movements now, and many of them are faith-inspired, who are trying to say, let's focus on the ones who are being beat up by the cops or being left out and left behind. Uh, in Baltimore, all those kids who were left out and left behind before there was any violence. Uh, in Ferguson, this young kid told me, he said, I said, when you protest, people want to know what you want. He said, what we want? Well, I want, I want an education, I want a job, and I want a family. Same things that my boys want. Mm-hmm. But they, they don't, they're shut out and left, left behind. So those are all, for me, the, the Matthew 25 people. There are three groups of people that I, I don't, uh, that I choose not to hang out with. One are politicians, two are evangelicals, and three are rich Christians. You hang out and do the dance with all three of those groups. Do you not get completely exhausted at doing the tango? Well, uh, first of all, I, I hate to, to uh, break up your <laughs> ra- record here, but, but I, am, am, I am, am an evangelical, and you just dance for a few extra minutes. So there you go. So you're hanging out with one of those people. Okay. I, hope, I hope it's going to be an okay experience. No, no, no. I know that's why I brought this up, because, you know, <laughs> you still call yourself an, e- an evangelical. Like, why? And more yeah. importantly, how are you still an evangelical? I don't get it. Well, because the original meaning of the, of the word goes back to Jesus' first sermon at Nazareth, what I call his Nazareth Manifesto, his first gig, his first mission statement. Uh, in, in Luke, he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And good news there, the word is evangel. So it's meant to be good news, particularly to the poor. Now, when you think evangelical, that's not the first thing you think of, good no, news. No, And good news to the poor. So I'm going to hold out for what it's, it's supposed to mean. Now, the good news is, I was talking to Shane Claiborne yesterday, a young young evangelical yeah we, we all we all know the hippie and uh and you know he would he says what i would say all over the country there's a whole new generation of evangelicals uh, young uh, black white hispanic who really are taking that good news and poor seriously so uh the loud voices in iowa when the pundits say the evangelicals uh that's who the media talks about but in fact there's a whole new thing happening now, the new presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, Bishop Curry, first African-American, he's talking about 
the need to evangelize again, that's very evangelical, and the priority of racial justice and reconciliation. Huh. So he's, he's singing the song that I've been singing for a long time. So I think there's a lot of hope there. But, of course, we also are very involved, deeply involved with Catholics and mainland Protestants and Jews and Muslims and a lot of the, the none of the above. The, the kids are checked none of the above when asked about their affiliation. Most of them believe in God. They just don't want to affiliate with religion. That's who I dressed were, up as, could, could. as in Halloween uh, this year. I dressed up as a nun. I did you? Yes. Yeah. Well, see, I love the nuns. In fact, when I used to go out speaking at Evangelical College, you'll, you'll, you'll love the story. So there's always would be very conservative place when I was out there speaking justice. And so there's always two rows of Catholic sisters in the auditorium in the chapel. I said, sisters, why are you here? And they would say, well, we're local. I said, well, I figure that, but why are you here? They said, Jim, we heard you were coming. This is a very conservative place. We thought somebody should have your back. <laughs> so I've had nuns as bodyguards for years, which is great. But these other nuns, none of the above, uh, in Ferguson, a lot of kids were in the streets. And then the clergy showed up and said, now, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's talk about what Dr. King said about nonviolence and all the rest. And the kids looked at the clergy and kind of said, who the hell are you? Yeah. We don't know. You've never been, have been here b before. And most of them had, had been Tracy Blackman who was a black, is a black minister, and Starsky Wilson, some others, went to the streets. And Brittany Pacnett, who I just did an interview with, was a, she ran Teach for America, still does, in St. Louis, and she went to the streets with her kids, right, and got tear gas and rubber bullshot shot at her. And, and, and she tells this great story how she was from a church family, but kind of was, was kind of dormant, and then she found God in the streets. And I've met with those Ferguson kids, and they want a God uh, who can be in the streets, and they want clergy who will be in the streets with, with them. So I think, you know, that's the good news when we... My theology says, in, in Jesus, God hits the streets. That's my incarnation theology, God hits the streets. Mm. So what does that mean for our faith to hit the streets? So that, to me, is the issue. And the politicians, you know... Um, you know, a senator will say to me recently, he said, I was a missionary in Honduras, Jesuit, as a young person. It changed my life. Now I'm trying to figure out this here in the Hill. Uh, or another one studied theology seminary while he was in law school. Now he's a senator. And they're struggling to put their own faith into action. Another one said the same conversation. This is a very dark place. Uh, the politics in D.C., now are that uh, it's a very dark place and so i think how do you do a light in the darkness on the outside and some of them want, want to talk i mean i get calls from these people they want to talk and you can't do a dance though that's the thing you can't dance with them hmm. you gotta you gotta really not dance you gotta talk and speak truthfully and the ones who want to talk will talk and the ones who don't won't uh, and again to me it's not elections as much as movements on the outside. So I try to build movements on, on the outside. And rich queer Christians, and uh, I, I'm always... <laughs> when I'm around rich people who are drawn to what they hear saying, that's when I try to be the most honest. So when I was giving, uh, unbelievably, the closing remarks year before last at Davos, <laughs> the World Economic Forum, 
I, I said, you want me to panel? No, we want you to give closing remarks. I said, <laughs> really? You mean like a, like a sermon? They said, yeah, I think we need you to preach us a sermon. The Pope had done a letter to them the first night, written letter. It said, it said wealth should serve humanity and not rule it. <laughs> so that was, you could hear a pin drop. So, when I, so I was at the end, and I looked at them, and I said, uh, okay, um, we have talked about the, um, the uh, uh, you know, those who are not included here. I mean, Bono's been here, and Bill Gates came and talked about that. But look around. Look at your neighbor. This room is the most included room in the world. You are the most included people on the globe. So the test of your vocation is going to be the relation between the most included and the most excluded. Huh. You could have heard a pin drop there, there too. Yeah. So afterwards, a lot of people walked away, but some others wanted to talk. So when you're, when you're like, that's back to the White, White House thing, you've got to have, um, if you're there or if you're anywhere where, where it's money and power, that's where you have to be most clear about what you're trying to say, and dancing doesn't work. Really, really well said. Uh, folks, we're on the phone with Jim Wallace, uh, and today's uh, seven weeks of Christmas charity is the Henry Nouwen Society, and Henry Nouwen is widely considered to be one of the most influential authors on spirituality in the late 20th century. Henry died in 96, but his books remain as popular and as influential as ever. Next Saturday, this gentleman, Jim Wallace, author, activist, and editor-in-chief of Sojourners Magazine, as well as a longtime personal friend to Henry Nouwen, will deliver the first annual Henry Nouwen Lecture at the University of Toronto's Convocation Hall. Jim will be speaking on a topic that was close to Henry's heart, the spirituality of social justice. It certainly promises to be an enlightening and engaging evening, well worth the trip downtown Toronto, because I have to come all the way from the country. I live in the country. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to this thing. Tickets are 20 bucks. available through U of T Ticks. That's U of T, T-I-X, dot C-A. Or you can get them at the door. Uh, Which I am thrilled about, by the way. Uh, Henry used to come here a lot in our early days. And Henry was worried about how the quest for spirituality in the consumer culture can be a dangerous thing, can turn spirituality into another commodity, mm. a book to buy, conference to go to, tape to li- listen to. And yet, uh, active, we were a bunch of young firebrand activists. He used to come and hang out with us, and, and, and he, he felt that would help keep him close to the justice struggle, but he also taught us that if you're trying to change the world and there's no sustaining inner life, no core, no authentic, uh, uh, you know, faith, you'll burn out, and you'll become angry and ideological, and eventually you, be, you could be, become violent. And so how do we have this tension? It's not a balance. It's an integral kind of relationship between the inner life and our life in the world. And Henry was always struggling. He never had it all together. He never said he did. But we would have endless conversations about how we do that, inner life, life in the world, and that's what I'll be talking about when I get to come to Toronto. What was your relationship? What was your relationship like with Henry? Very close. Uh, we talk a lot. He, uh, we walked and talked. And Henry was. Uh, he once wrote a book called "The Wounded Healer," mm-hmm. a famous one of his books. 
And he was that himself. He uh, embodied that. And he was struggling with all these things in his own life. And, uh, you know, I'll tell a story about how when Dom Hilder Camara, the amazing Brazilian archbishop who was with the poor, happened to be in town one day when Henry was visiting us. And uh, uh, Dom Hilder's people called and said, he's, he's sick at this downtown hotel. He wants to be with the base community. Can he come and see you for the afternoon? So we had Henry now and, and Dom Hilder Camara in a conversation with sojourners for a whole afternoon. I'll wow. tell that story in, in Toronto. The priest of the poor in Brazil with the Dutch contemplative priest. Amazing conversation. So I think this relationship between our inner life, the integrity, authenticity of our inner life, our relationship to God, is is foundational, but it doesn't have, and the Pope has made, made this clear, if that doesn't exemplify itself in the world, you know, it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and mind, and right away, love your neighbor as yourself. How do you do those things together? And that's what we'll try and wrestle with uh, in Toronto, which I'm looking forward to. Uh, how did you get the news that Henry had passed? I think it just, it just was a news report that I heard. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he, you know, he was here a lot. He was thinking of joining us at one, at one point, and, and, and Larsh, he went to Larsh, which I thought was the right decision for him. But we talked on the phone, he'd Sometimes he would just show up in town and say, I'm here, can we talk? <laughs> yeah, he was like that. <clears throat> you know, you, you've talked about this relationship that you and he had. Yeah. You had an impact on him, I'm sure, as well. Did he ever verbalize to you the impact you, Jim Wallace, had on Henry Nowen? Well, yeah, we taught me. He was very, uh, very honest and transparent. And he knew that, um, that as... You know, he wants to the pilgrimage to Latin America to try to, uh, you know, discipline his own spirituality. And I remember one one time he came to a big rally. We used to march, still do. We were marching in Washington, big rally. And so he came, and I had him speak. He spoke, and then he came down from the pulpit, and he joined the march, you know. And you could tell how that experience was really... Uh, uh, you know, a struggle, you know, to march in, in the streets, something new for him. And I think, I think it was, he came to sort of, because he knew that contemplative spirituality, as Thomas Merton understood, uh, you know, has to be grounded or has to find its way to the world. And he was, part of his relation to us was, was to, to, to keep coming back to that again and again. But he would teach our people that if you're trying to change the world, and back then we, you know, we thought we were doing that every day, you know, mm. that unless you're grounded someplace deeper, then you're in danger. And so it was a wonderful dialogue and relationship we, we had. And he, I, I think he deepened our life as a community, and I think he, he would say, in fact, he did, did say that we deepened his notion of spirituality because it connected it to justice. Okay, just as a final question, Jim, uh, you know, there are people who are listening who are already sort of socially justice aware, and they're going to hear your name, and they're going to say, oh, I've got to go to this, I've got to go to this thing, uh, this, this lecture at uh, Convocation Hall at the University of Toronto. They're going to hear, there are others who are going to hear the Henry Nowen name, and they'll, they will have read one of his books, they will have been impacted by him somehow, some way, and they'll think, okay, this, this is interesting, I'd like to go to this. But why in the world would anybody want to come to this thing 
if they aren't turned on by Jim Wallace and Henry Nowen or social justice. You know, they're they're not already in in that that pocket of thinking. They're just an average schmuck like me who really, when push comes to shove, doesn't actually give a holy grunt about the whole social justice thing. Because if I did, I'd be doing a lot more. Uh, you know, why would I sign up for an evening of guilt? Yeah, it's uh, yeah, an evening of guilt is not something that is going to change change the world. I don't think it's guilt. I think there's a great hunger. I, I find two hungers out there. One is a real hunger is a spiritual hunger, a hunger uh, for something greater than ourselves, a hunger for God. Some people, some people don't want to say that, but there's a hunger for something that is bigger than just our own lives, our own experiences, a hunger for something bigger and deeper, the big questions. That's deeply in a lot of people. And then there's a hunger uh, to see the world different, to, to make the world different or better, so hunger for God, hunger for justice. I find that in people who are religious or not. Um, I'll close and sir, I'm doing this class this, this afternoon. And I, the first time I taught was at Harvard, and it was at the Kennedy School of Government, which is a very secular place. Mm-hmm. And they all went around to say who they were and why they were there. And uh, one of my students, he was a very devout, committed, zealous, black church kid, and he said, I'm here because I'm a born-again uh, follower of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and I'm here because we got a famous Christian professor in Scotland. Glory to God, Hallelujah! And it's the Kennedy School. And the woman who was next to speak, you could we could hear her uh, under her breath saying, "Oh shit!" <laughs> and then she said, "I'm a lesbian, uh, feminist, agnostic. I'm here to give this stuff one last chance." So those two became friends during the course of the class. Wow. And I, I said, and I said in my class, if you're anywhere between those two, you're welcome to come. <laughs> That is perfect. What a great way to end this conversation. Well, listen, I I, uh, I thank you. I really do. You, you know, to me, you're kind of like Greenpeace. I don't want to hang around with Greenpeacers. I, you know, women that don't shave their legs, stuff like that. I, I don't want to hang around those people um, because they just they're 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 so agenda driven that it, it's just I can't imagine they have any friends. But I'm I'm really thankful they're out there doing what they're doing because if they weren't doing what they're doing, then there wouldn't be a watchdog in 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 the areas that most of us don't care about. And and Jim, you're you're the same thing, you know? You're like Greenpeace for Jesus. No, you're the Greenpeace for, for the least of these. Really, that's what it is. Well but but I'm also I'm told fun to hang out with. No, Especially no. Especially to go to a baseball game. We should go to a game sometime. Dude, tell me you've been to at least one Wolverines football game. You mean Michigan Wolverines? Yeah. Yeah. Of course, because I was a Michigan State Spartan, my brother, and we had to was good versus evil. We had, you saw what happened a few week, weeks ago. God intervened on a punt, and Michigan State, we should have lost the game scored. So, you know, yeah. my father went to Michigan, and I went to Michigan State. There right, right. So if you ever see Regis Philbin, would you just trip him or something? Just push him over in the sidewalk? I, yeah. I wouldn't do that. Yeah. I would just recover his fumble. <laughs> Jim Wallace on the Drew Marshall Show. Sir, thank you for your time. I really Thanks appreciate it. Yeah. All okay. right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I like him. <laughs> I like Jim Wallace. You know, he's the kind of guy who's at the right place at the right time. 
there are too many loudmouth, pushy, agenda-driven Jesus people trying to suck up to the White House. Yes. That's how I really feel. All right, listen, a very short break. Stay with us. Love. 